Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Francoise Borza. Francoise is a consciousness guide and counselor. She has a master's degree in somatic psychology from New College of California and is a certified Hakomi practitioner. Residing in the San Francisco Bay Area, she has been weaving the healing potential of expanded states of consciousness and psychology together in her practice for over 30 years. After traveling the world as a young woman, Francoise found her way to San Francisco in the early 1980s. It was there she met her first teacher, a pioneer exploring the intersection of indigenous healing and psychotherapy. She later met her teacher of the last 20 years, an indigenous Mazatec woman leading healing ceremonies with sacred mushrooms in the high mountains of Southern Mexico. Drawing from years of close apprenticeship with her Mazatec teacher, as well as training in other indigenous traditions, Francoise has developed a comprehensive approach that bridges Western and indigenous modalities for healing and growth. She trains therapists and facilitators, teaches at the California Institute of Integral Studies and lectures internationally. And she is also the author, along with Christina Hunter, of this wonderful book that I had the opportunity to read in preparation for this interview, which is called Consciousness Medicine, Indigenous Wisdom, Entheogens, and Expanded States of Consciousness for Healing and Growth. So Francoise and I are going to speak a little bit about some of the content from that book today. So hello, Francoise. Thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Jacob. So as we were being introduced to a little bit in the bio, um, your story that led you to the work that you do with entheogens, with um, expanded states of consciousness and their role in the healing process, I would love to start with just a question about um, the what led you to the work that you do, expanding on that story a little bit and maybe touching on some of the highlights that you mention at the beginning of your book in that beautiful chapter um, about the narrative that brought you to this work with, uh, with entheogens and expanded states of consciousness. You know, I was introduced to the um, entheogens practice uh, during my uh, travel in South America, as you mentioned, and I was 19 or 20 at the time, and it was an experience with San Pedro cactus, uh, the mescaline containing San Pedro cactus, and it really opened my mind to the magnificence of those experiences once they are held in safe context uh, with, a, with a person present and in a respectful manner, and in this case, in nature, which is uh, a wonderful way to experience this medicine. And so it, it, it had an impression on me because, um, because I had never done anything like this, and I was young, and I was innocent and naive, and I had not done anything of, of, of substances of sort. Later on, when I came to California in 1981, I had the opportunity shortly after, a couple of years later, or oh, three years later, to meet um, some people who would be called medicine men, really, um, of First Nation uh, origin, who were working as counselors and also as um, guides of entheogen practices. And it was really significant for me to work with them because I had personal wounding, I had trauma from early in my life and then in my early 20s. 
And so it was uh, it was a good support and a very efficient way for me to look at myself uh, as a young woman. I was 27, 28 and and uh, and really do the significant work of healing um, that I needed uh, to move on with my life. Um, and the uh, the power of those uh, contexts of journeys, as I call them now, were so uh, diligently held, so uh, serious and so attentively supported that um, it really uh, affect me, affected me, of course, personally, but affected me also in orienting me to uh, devote my life, to be able to offer that to other people. Mm. So was there any point along the way in in your own personal story where you very strongly realized the limitations of, you know, let's call them Western traditional therapeutic methods and saw the benefit of of really what you do now, which is to integrate, incorporate um, these expanded states of awareness into a larger therapeutic practice? Well, strangely enough, Jacob, I didn't start that way. It's I started the 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 other way, which is kind of a rare situation where my therapy was starting with these practices and these people. I never had a sense of what Western therapy, traditional verbal therapy, was like. I didn't. You know, I had not done any particular therapy for myself. I just met these people and started my process in this way. So in a way, my personal development psychologically or on the, on the level of emotional awareness really was shaped by that context of um, the, the, the journey space and the intelligence space, supported by counseling sessions, of course, for preparation, for integration and ongoing support. So I didn't have a comparison. I didn't know what to compare it to. But later on, as I studied somatic psychology and I studied Hakomi and I studied, you know, uh, various forms of psychotherapy, I realized how ahead I was in a way, uh, you know, from from these practices that are so deep and so um, efficient in unfolding the material that ought, ought to be addressed. Your your book, of course, lands at a really kind of key moment for this work because, as you mentioned in your book, there is a renaissance that's taking place in terms of psychedelics. I, you know, there was that initial kind of renaissance that took place in in I guess it was the sixties and seventies, and then we got a bit more conservative for a while, and now there's this return to an attention. Um, to the utility of these of these practices, these traditions, and these um, methods. So, what do you think is um, unique about this moment that is ushering back in a more balanced conversation about the use of these um, practices? You know, from my understanding, and having tracked the psychedelic field for you know thirty five years and 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 going, I have uh, I have tracked that the one of the first uh, return into research with psychedelics was in 1992. So it's not very uh, recent, really. Uh, in 1992, the first MDMA research in uh, UC Irvine was conducted by Gary Bravo and uh, Charlie Grubb, Charles, Dr. Charles Grubb, um, regarding uh, end-of-life anxiety. And it, so it, it has been happening for, you know, almost 30 years. This is not the last few years that this um, renaissance has been really happening. But, you 
you know, uh, it's definitely later than the 60s and 70s, right? So there was about a gap of 20 years and not 40 years, as people tend to say. It, it, the research started in 92. And then John Hopkins uh, continued the research in 2000, 2001, with the, um, you know, healthy, normal, spiritual experience with psilocybin at John Hopkins with uh, um, uh, Roland Griffith. So, so uh, you know, and then going on like this, the in other words, the torch was kept uh, alight, you know, uh, from the early 90s into the field of, um, you know, university research and hospital research. Now, um, I feel like um, there is a, a, a mobilization from the field of uh, medical experts, psychiatrists in the appropriate research about treatment, uh, treatment for um, suicide, treatment for depression, treatment for PTSD, uh, treatment for anxiety. And the medical field has mobilized more and more in um, spearheading some research in various institutions. Of course, we have to count with MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies that uh, Rick Dublin has uh, headed uh, since '86 really, 1986, which is significant, and has, um, uh, you know, brought forward uh, the value of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for treatment of PTSD. Uh, And that has been a long road for them to uh, stay on board of that mission and really, uh, to this day, to today, arrive almost at the FDA approval of their um, treatment form. So a lot has happened over the years, over the last 25 years or 30 years. And, uh, and, and now we're seeing this renaissance because I think the public is more and more informed. The social media is creating a lot more information, uh, access to people to read about the possibilities, the research, the articles. There's more information circulating, essentially. And I think that, you know, journalism and and uh, and uh, research are pairing up to allow more um, more dialogue and more um, interest and more destigmatization of this field of uh, psychedelics. Really, uh, being less of a drug and more a medical uh, approach or a psycho- psychotherapeutic approach and overall a healing approach. It it was funny, as you were saying, 30 years, I'm thinking 1992. And when I think of that year, just just kind of without really thinking about it, it doesn't seem like 30 years ago. But then when I when I really count the years, it, it really has been that long. And um, it's funny how time flies. But, um, you know, when you were talking about the the shift that's taking place in terms of our approach to psychedelics as being not a drug um, but also, but a therapeutic measure. I'm curious what you think about the way in which the popularity of um, participating in these kinds of ceremonies and and taking up kind of these practices has been in somewhat in in some instances unmoored from the appropriate therapeutic and counseling context that you so you know. Um, expertly support in the book you wrote, um, and you talk a little bit about this in the term of uh, in terms of this term neo shamanism or the neo shamanistic movement. And so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. What are some of the kind of less than 
healthy ways that um, the kind of popular culture is beginning to, let's use the word misappropriate here, misappropriate these practice practices and what are some of the negative effects that might happen as a result of engaging these practices without the right support? Mm-hmm. Well, what I'd like to uh, speak of first, uh, if I may, is what you said earlier, which is, um, you know, the the way these practices or these approaches have been uh, coming into our more industrialized world is the fact that they, they, you know, first of all, these practices have existed for thousands of years in their indigenous context, right? In Mexico for the mushroom, in South America for ayahuasca, in South America for mescaline cactuses, or North America and Mexico for the peyote practices, or iboga in Africa. So this this sacred plant and these sacred practices have been healing and uh, and and a source of connection with spirit for thousands of years. So this is not a new thing. The fact that these substances and their synthetic components, such like LSD and uh, psilocybin, were were used in less than optimal context in the 60s and 70s, we can discuss the fact that these substances have existed all along in humanity. They're not exclusively destined or optimal in a psychotherapeutic context. They are used in conjunction with therapy, and I and I like that environment because it really brings together an intelligence of emotional nature with a um, respect for the traditional practice uh, where the substance comes from. The when I talk about neo shamanism, I think I talk about the attempt of bringing into the industrialized world some practices of indigenous nature, but without the legitimacy of it, you know, without the uh, the knowledge or the experience in indigenous context to ground and root those, um, those techniques and skill into a, a, a sense of lineage, a sense of of um, apprenticing, you know, a sense of some, like someone gave you this um, technique, someone taught you this technique from an indigenous uh, teacher or someone who was authorized by an indigenous teacher and like that through lineage. So I think that neo-shamanism is a legitimate attempt to bring some, uh, some uh, you know, First Nation practices into a... Um, a place of ceremony. Um, the therapy adjunct is an intelligent way to frame those experiences. But the issue of appropriation or misappropriation is a very big topic of discussion in the field of psychedelics having to do with indigenous practices or indigenous medicines. It's less a conversation in the field of MDMA research for MAPS or in the field of ketamine-assisted therapy because, you know, they don't have a, a lineage to um, respect or follow or, or answers answer to, right? So, um, you know, the neo-shamanism is not a bad thing in and of itself if it is connected with a lineage that is uh, respected and that is honored and, uh, and named and authorized. But when it is just, you know, a way to take some uh, aspects of a ritual and use it and not have the legitimacy to claim it, then it becomes more of a, of a, 
you know, uh, a, a, a kind of a stealing <laughs> or borrowing without respect. Yeah, absolutely. So then what do you think, you know, besides just the the virtue of non-stealing, <laughs> um, uh, what is it that also is kind of gained or how does the the inclusion of lineage and the respect for lineage actually enrich um, the process of, of transformation when involved with a specific technique that comes from a specific tradition? The, the indigenous people have a certain, um, a whole philosophy and cosmology around their medicines. So I am more familiar with the uh, indigenous tribe of the Mazatec who are um, practicing the sacred mushroom ceremonies in Mexico. This is what I can talk about. I will not generalize with other indigenous groups, of course. But in that specific group, there is an entire philosophy, a relationship with the land, a relationship with spirit or with community or how they consider their relationship with these mushrooms and how do they talk to them and how do they listen and how do they pray and what do they do around a ceremony? There's an entire, um, not protocol is the word really, it's not a rigid protocol, but a certain a practice that's very specific. And we, as people who want to understand uh, psychedelics, uh, should really pay attention to how these people have done it for thousands of years. There's something to learn there, right? I mean, uh, if you want to go fishing, you go with a fisherman who's been fishing before, and you watch, and you learn, and you spend hours, and you absorb the the technique, and you watch how they look at the situation, right? So it's just a similar thing. If you want to learn psychedelics, you have to be uh, respectfully from a, uh, an indigenous environment or someone who has studied with an indigenous environment. So that can be passed on. That's what we call lineage. Huh? So now uh, I've been immersed into the Mazatec world for over 20 years, and that gives me a certain um, angle and a certain understanding. Um, I'm not saying I understand everything, but I understand some things. And so now when I talk to people uh, with the permission of my Mazatec friends, I can explain some things to people and then they can receive that in what we call the lineage, in what we call the, the, the thread of permission and respectful sharing. And so then that gets uh, passed on, right? Um, because I've observed it, I have been given the, the right or the, you know, the green light to, to, to talk about it. And, and then other people can then learn from me, I'm just a, I'm just a messenger for them, right? Yeah, I mean, I, so I, it seems like part of what you're saying is that the the familiarity or the permission that's given by lineage also comes with a kind of context of knowledge and, as you were saying, a philosophical orientation or a worldview that actually informs. Um, the experience that you're having. And so I'm curious if you think that's that's a, a key part of it, that, you know, we're one to have the experience without sort of the the context of understanding and, and the way of situating that experience, that it, it the, the experience might be less um, informative or transformative without that, you know, envelopment within a context of, of a certain kind of understanding that's associated with lineage. Yes, I think it's correct what you're saying. We call it in the field the molecular effect of the or the holistic effect. 
So the molecular effect is you're taking a medicine, you're taking a, a, a chemical essentially that changes your brain chemistry, that that changes the the, the functioning of your central nervous system, who uh, which which um, teaches you things, which takes you into its own world if it's a natural uh, substance. Uh, it transforms your perception of the world. It it makes you look at your self and your um, afflictions or your struggles, or it makes you have a greater opening into the vast place of spirit or universe. Or um, all this is valid, right? All this is valid. It doesn't it doesn't uh, negate or cancel any of this. But when you have an experience that is held within the context of a deeper, bigger, holi- more holistic understanding uh, that is conducted with with the appropriate prayer and the appropriate container from the place of the of the guide of the ceremony which in traditional places all the ceremonies that ever happen are held by a, a ritual leader right doesn't matter if it's a sun dance or it's a sweat lodge or if a meditation there's always a teacher somewhere there's always somewhere who has the technique has the knowledge and holds the space for what participants um, go through so with the with the addition of such a guide such a we call it the guide because we have to call it somewhere something but you know with the with the presence of the guide that holds in him or herself themselves the the um the knowledge and the uh the technique and who has the lineage uh installed that creates an entire different environment that is connected with the container not so much the molecules, but the container in which the journey happens. And that's a very important, uh, I, I don't want to say distinction, but addition for sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a meaningful addition. Yeah. So I want to ask you something, you know, obviously it goes without saying that um, you see the value and significance of kind of the spiritual dimension of healing, you know, otherwise you wouldn't have written this book about um, these states. But in the spiritual or the wellness world, there is a common charge of what's called, you know, spiritual bypassing this idea that actually, and I think this is a misunderstanding or rather um, taking it too far, so, so to speak, which I think based on something you said in your book, you might agree with that um, the idea that these sorts of states are always in some sense, a bypassing that what you really need to do is sort of, you know, go directly to the, you know, whatever it is that the trauma in a certain kind of way, and that, that these states are actually a distraction or a way of, of not addressing those. And so, you know, uh, can you talk a little bit about this and how maybe that notion of spiritual bypassing goes a little bit too far and doesn't actually acknowledge the, the the significance or the role of the spiritual dimension of healing in in you know this process mm-hmm. yeah that's a very good point thank you for bringing it up spiritual experiences are key to entheogenic practices the indigenous people consider the uh, practice of of entheogens as not only a way of healing, but a way of praying and a way of communing with spirit. So clearly the presence of spirit and the beauty and healing 
and and opening and expanding that comes from connecting with spirit is a huge part of those experiences. In fact, the Mazatec consider healing uh, anchored in a spiritual healing. You cannot heal your heart unless you have spirit in support of you or in communion with you. So a lot of the afflictions uh, we carry, the Mazatec consider this a spiritual illness that is healed in spiritual space. Uh, That being said, it is also held in the Mazatec belief that we need to open our hearts and see what is in our hearts that, you know, Holding spirit and communicating with spirit is a beautiful thing, and it's a resourceful thing, and it's a prayer, and it's feeding our souls. And it's hard to live lives with burdens in our hearts, with pain, with trauma, with abuse, with addictions. You know, we, we need to face what pain we carry that lead us to self-destructive path and or the sadness we carry that we need to pour, they call it, pouring out your sadness in the journey. So both healing burden and psychological or trauma uh, stories is is one very important aspect. And spiritual fuel is a very important aspect. Now, there are some some people who uh, believe that the spiritual aspect is almost the one aspect and central aspect and only aspect. And then we're talking about spiritual bypassing. So the, the, the tandem, um, you know, the tandem, uh, you know, the pairing up of those two aspects is essential for healing. And I want to reiterate that. However, some people feel like by, by taking a lot of medicine and in a way, you know, bypassing or being transported beyond the pain, you know, beyond the pain is a way to heal. And then there is an avoidance. There is a way to bypass, right? Bypass the psychological or human um, healing that is necessary to come back from such spiritual experience and really have the groundedness to live life. Because one can have a great spiritual experience and come back into this world with no exploration of their trauma, with no exploration of their uh, psychological stories, right, or biography or historical um, difficulties, and and so then they come back into this life and have to deal with this still. It doesn't, it, you know, even though they might have had a great fueling of spirit with their uh, spiritual moment, which is very valid, they are not equipped or they are not resolved enough into their emotional layer to uh, to to move on with life. So then we call that spiritual bypassing, and it's. Again, it's it's bypassing as long or as it is not interested or wanting to address or pay attention to the psychological, emotional, historical um, layer of what needs to be healed. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that bypassing can be found in so many contexts, not least of which being um, even the modern psychological one, where one could perhaps argue that um, not to say that medication isn't sometimes necessary, but that the the desire to merely mute the pain or just to make the pain go away without kind of first encountering it or working through it um, is it might be a form of, of bypassing. So, of course, doesn't just exist in the spiritual world. Um, but, uh, you know, on that note, you know, you mentioned pain and and one of the things I found really beautiful, and I don't think I've ever 
read someone express it this way, um, which is related to the relationship between pain and suffering. And in 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 the spiritual community, there's a common um, kind of uh, saying that um, pain is inevitable and suffering is optional. Um, but you say something a little bit different. You say some. You say that suffering is pain without any meaning attached to it, which I just thought was really beautiful. So can you talk a little bit of what, about what that means and what the role of meaning is in, in transmuting um, our suffering into something um, more insightful, perhaps? When we go into the spiritual dimension, there's no pain there. There's no suffering there. There's a sense of liberated self, a sense of freedom, a sense of, you know, spirit. We don't have the human heart and the human body and the human story to deal with. So when we are in this level of our human condition, I call it, we have suffering, we have pain, we have all of it. You know, we have, uh, you know, our physical suffering and pain because of our, you know, ailments and disease and break, bro broken bones. We have our emotional pain or oppression that we carry from our lineage or generations or culture. We have our, um, uh, the traumas that we carry. And so all this level of suffering is fruitful to explore and can become almost like a spiritual practice, as many um, meditation leaders have said. Um, it can become a meditation practice in the sense that Suffering leads to compassion. Suffering, meaning, um, you know, exploring the, the theme of pain, exploring what is, um, what is my suffering? I have been mistreated. I have gone through some trauma. What have I learned? What have I, what have I gained? How do I understand other people's suffering better because of my suffering? What, what, what is my suffering useful for? almost, right? What, what is, why is it a path in my life that I must be intrigued and curious of, just like anything else? It's just a part of my life that I can use and I can uh, make something fruitful out of it. And mostly it's about the intricacy of my complexity, what I accept in myself as far as limitation, how do I care for myself with these limitations, and how do I see people around me with their own suffering that I don't understand, that I can't have judgment for, and that only I can have compassion for the complexity of their experience. So in a way, suffering becomes a spiritual practice, essentially, that, that is not just a, a blind burden and, and a drag, you know, but it becomes something to move forward as far as our soul and spiritual development, really. Mm. So I guess a follow-up question to that, which I, I love that that what you're saying, and it's so it's a beautiful kind of thing to contemplate. But where does the line where is the line drawn between approaching one's suffering as a as a spiritual practice and then identifying with one's suffering in another, you know, way that's sort of um perhaps contracted or or limited in in, in terms of the larger spiritual path? What I've noticed in this exploration and healing and growing and spiritually expanding and being a human being is that it it, it is a very um, convoluted process and meandering path. It is not like 
a straight line between this, I'm going to, you know, between this suffering that I'm going to work on psychologically, so I will be reaching a spiritual dimension. I feel like the process of cycling over and over into, into a layer of, of, like I, I say, going into the trench, you know, going into the, the the digging out of my personal suffering and the intricacy of my past and the many layers of my emotions is an ongoing process. And I can go in there and do my personal inquiry and introspection and, and really looking at all the threads that constitute my suffering and my emotions attached with it, and then sort of come up for air into a spiritual uh, arena that, uh, in which I feel resourced, in which I feel, um, more, uh, you know, more well, a sense of wellness and a sense of heartfulness. And then I go back into, because of a special trigger or situation in my life, I might be invited again into looking at another layer of the eternal onion peeling, you know, that one is, uh, uh, is doing through life. Um, so I think that this process of, of, of psychological, emotional inquiry and spiritual renewal and expansion and deepening is really uh, an ongoing life's process. And I see that as a, as, a, as a cycle, like a spiral, you know, that keeps expanding and keeps, uh, keeps coming back to, its, uh, to, to itself in a way. Mm. In, uh, in your book, you mentioned that when we begin this process, or perhaps not just when we begin, but throughout this process, often the first kind of peel of the onion is, is fear. That's we, uh, we first encounter fear. Um, and so I'm curious about the role of fear and, and what it is that we're afraid of. Is it purely about the fear associated with our own kind of inner demons and the, and the, and the struggles and suffering that we face that we're afraid of that? Or is there something kind of more cosmological or, or universal at play in this experience of fear as we encounter it in, in expanded states? I think that the first layer of fear that we experience is encounter the encountering of the unknown. When we go into these psychedelic states or expanded states, which whatever technique, of course, with psychedelics, it does a different dimension or a different level because it is not something we can uh, step back from at will, unlike you know, unlike a meditation retreat or unlike a another ritual in which we are in this level of consciousness, in this consensus reality. But when we take psychedelics, we are really entering layers of ourselves that are less known. And by, by definition, our ego structure doesn't like the unknown, doesn't like going into territories that are unfamiliar, with no orientation, with no coping mechanism, with no reference point. So there is an innate fear. You know, when you, um, it, it, you can see that in the animal kingdom as well. I mean, you, you put a, I mean, I've seen that, of course, like everybody, you know, they transport an elephant from here to there. Well, even though the elephant may be happier in an open environment, you know, instead of a cage, when you see the elephant come out, you know, they're checking the environment. They're not sure. They're not sure what it is. The cage has been familiar for 20 years. Now they found themselves in a beautiful field and they're not sure to just jump out. You know, there's a certain like 
whoa, what's, what, what is this new environment? How do I orient here? And I think that's what happened. I'm sorry, but I mean, I hope this is illustrating the point. But, you know, I mean, really, the fear is, what is this? What is this new landscape? What is this new sensation? What is this new state I'm in? And how do I actually, what do I do here? I'm not I, but what, what is unfolding? And what is the disappearance of my I consciousness? And how do I enter this new new orientation, this new uh, landscape? And so I think that fear is associated with that at first. Then, of course, there is a loss of control. There's a loss of agency. When we take psychedelics, we relinquish our control, right? We are not in charge anymore. We cannot make decisions. We are sort of incapacitated for a while. And that agreement to lose control is a really big deal. You know, it's a big deal because, you know, who is going to be in charge? Am I safe? Hence the presence of the guide. <laughs> so am I safe? Am I, who, who has me here? And so then a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, for a lot of us, a lot of situations with absence of safety, with trauma, with, um, you know, difficult, painful, intense, dramatic, sudden situations of lack of safety as a child can emerge of course. And so that's that that layer of fear that is more historical, right? And then there is, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the fear of what is met, you know? So then one can go into meeting a difficult emotion of sorrow, a difficult emotion of grief or anger or, um, uh, you know, a, tra- a trauma story, right? And then there's all the accompanying emotions that go with a specific uh, scenario that is revealed or evoked uh, in that moment. So then there is different layers of fear. Um, and the fear is a normal mechanism. Like I said earlier, it's a good, oh, it's a good, it's a normal instinct for anybody, uh, anybody. It's a, it's a normal instinct. So we cannot escape fear. It's part of our makeup. We are wired that way. Um, it can also be an interesting, how could I say, an interesting uh a, a, you know, signal for an environment sometime that is not optimal. I remember someone telling me they went to a circle and immediately they didn't feel very safe. And they were tracking, since they had done some medicine in different contexts, they were tracking, huh, is it me? Is it my process or is it the environment? And there was something unsafe in the environment. There were some some men assisting who were uh, unclear about their boundaries with women. Um Participants and they were the women that I'm talk, I was talking uh, to said there was a sense of absence of safety. I could feel, I could feel, um, I could feel that it was not a safe place for women. Uh, that the, the 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 way the space was held was not fully respectful and fully supportive. There was a bit of a predator feeling to it. And she said it was it was obvious that I was afraid from the beginning and that was not my paranoia. There was something in the space. And later on in checking with other people and consequently she, you know, uh, proved her point, so to speak. Um, so the fear can also be a signal of of what is going on in the in the space. When people do uh, psychedelics in groups, um, a fear can also be a signal of of perceiving uh, an experience or a process in someone else in the group, uh, which is 
fine, but can be disturbing or can be uh, heavy or intense and can sort of distract or take over uh, the, uh, the, 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 you know, the personal, uh, you know, someone's personal journey. So that can be a, a source of fear as well to be sort of invaded by someone else's process, which of course signals other historical moments of feeling invaded. So sometimes fear is also a good or an interesting trigger for an invitation into a personal process. Wow, so many dimensions and layers to fear. I uh, to fear as you're describing it. It's such a um, such an interesting thing and and so fruitful. I think to look at it and from so many directions as you're as you're suggesting. And I really like your um, analogy of the elephant, also because <laughs> um, you know even though it provokes sort of a sad image of an elephant in captivity, it's a very true image and it also kind of you know. In a, in a bit, a, a bit analogizes certain um, experiences of awareness or consciousness as as themselves being a certain kind of captivity. So, um, and the fear associated with um, with finding freedom in a way. Um, so, I thought that was really beautiful. So, I'd like to speak a little bit now about a model that really kind of structures and frames the content of your book, which is what you refer to as the five-part holistic model, um, which is comprised, as I said, of five parts, <laughs> body, mind, spirit, community, and environment. And then that sort of dovetails with or um, uh, connects with these three qualities of wisdom, creativity, and love. So can you take us through kind of the role and the centrality and perhaps a couple features of each one of these um, as you feel they relate to this, um, this path of, of, of incorporating expanded states into our um, healing or growth process? Yes. I would like to preface my, my, my explanation on this holistic model by saying that it is really created and born out of my observation of the indigenous context. You know, the, uh, the axis of body, mind, spirit has been accepted and integrated in a way into the more contemporary uh, look at the psychological and emotional process. We understand the role and the uh, potency of the body and the somatic experience in holding trauma in uh, holding our emotions, in the role of, of movement being important for well-being. We have also acquired the fact that um, a meditation practice or a contemplative practice or the role of prayer in the sense of well-being and of an individual is really important. So the body-mind-spirit has been sort of assembled into a powerful and healing axis what generally has not been ad added to this axis, because we are more of an individual, individualistic um, culture in the industrialized world, is uh, are the aspects of community, the collective, the social, and uh, the environment, which is nature, and also where we live. So in my observation of the Mazatec uh, tradition and other traditions, uh, I have been really struck by how their relationship with nature is paramount, paramount, the source of their healing, the place of their prayer, the source of their food, and how they relate to nature in a very, very immediate manner. 
um, and the way the collective is um, involved in um, the the spiritual practice, the the life practice, how families live together in a larger context. Um, so I've seen the collective and the environment being really integral part of the indigenous life. And so it was important for me to include these two other aspects into this, what I call the holistic model. And then these qualities also were important because it's not just a mechanical process to identify human life with different aspects with naming them as categories. It has to be infused with a certain quality or a certain color or flavor. Um, so the 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 five aspect, um, like you named them, um, the body. The body has to do with. Okay, so first of all, let me tell, let me say that this model is important because it helps us, like a roadmap, like a like a template, like a chart in looking at our life, and hopefully covering all the bases, covering who we are and the different facets of our human experience, and by doing so, we are observing the state of balance or imbalance we are on. So, and by, by looking at that, we can then make changes and we can then uh, unfold and transform and take charge of our life and be uh, empowered to uh, address and expand the territories that are more um, atrophied, I should say, or weak. Huh? And, and, and recognize what is strong in us and what is a resource and what is a, a tool and a skill that we have. So the body aspect has to do with our breath, our food, our sleep, our movement, our sexual life, our um, sensual uh, sense of uh, pleasure. It, it can be sensual, sexual, but also a sense of pleasure with touching things or um, or eating some food. And so what is our body experiencing? Are we in touch with our bodies? Do we, do we move? Do we do some yoga or dance or hiking? Do we, um, do we breathe properly? You know, how do we, how do we breathe when we speak? How we, uh, are we tense inside our body? Are we holding uh, tension, emotions? And uh, what is the body as a vehicle for our life and a vehicle for our transformation? So looking at the body aspect is really an important, basic, foundational aspect. Looking at the mind, we go into the territory of our thinking, right? The books we read, the things we study, the conversations we have with people that inform our knowledge, that inform what we understand and know and how we express ourselves. It also includes the territory of the unconscious, which is, of course, our deeper layer that we can be evoking through various practices, just as expressive arts and movement and, um, you know, writing, different, different techniques are um, and, and contemplating our dreams, of course, uh, tapping into the pool of the unconscious, which is really the, the, the landscape we are uh, exploring when we go in psychedelic uh, landscapes. Of course, the mind also uh, relates to the emotional world and how we are oh, inhabited by a lot of emotions from, you know, joy and rapture and happiness and uh, to sorrow and sadness and grief to anger and irritation and critical self and all these different aspects of our mind, right? So that's the mind. And then we go into the spirit. So spirit um, is, you know, a, 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 a very internal, intimate, 
very personal space within ourselves that we can access through meditation or through walking meditation, through uh, art practices, of course, uh, through movement, of course, uh, through various contemplative spirit, through singing, through praying, through going to church or temple or uh, synagogues or mosque. And we can uh, accessing through rituals that can be pagan rituals or, of course, uh, psychedelic-oriented rituals. And the space of spirit, as we talked earlier, is fundamental to our core, to our well-being, to our health. Huh? Um, so the spirit is is not just something outside of us, but how does it live inside us? What is the what is the experience of spirit inside us as we carry our life uh, in our everyday? Uh, every day, every day, everyday life. And then we go into the, 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 the community. So then we go into our relational field, our family of origin, our culture of origin, our country of origin, or town of origin, our uh, school system, our um, sport endeavors, um, our uh, community of choices, spiritual community, psychological community, university, colleges, and such. Uh, work environment that can be also a source of community. We can also consider community our family that we have created with partners or possibly children. And what is this? What is this field of relational support? This limbic system, human to human connection, right? What is the community, the human relationship that we have exchanges with? And then the environment has to do both with the place in which we live, which of course is a very powerful reflection of our own inner self, of course, right? The the place you live reflects your inner place also. Um, so that comprises that. And it also comprises the the nature, the nature around us all, uh, the, the specific nature that surrounds us that we choose to uh, commune with. And uh, and our relationship with gardens, with wilderness, with uh, food growing or beekeeping, and our relationship with interfacing with nature as well as being in nature, communing in a more contemplative, more being with and letting nature talk to us in a more passive way, I may say. So there are all these different aspects. That is, for me, when I look at all this intricacy of uh, global but also detailed aspect. I'm fascinated with the multiplicity of 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 what constitutes human life. And when I look at these different uh, inventories of tracking system, I'm fascinated by what I can learn about myself on an ongoing basis. Which I use the holistic model ongoingly. Now, of course, it became a little more hardwired into my uh, my brain, so to speak, or my tracking mechanism. And I can see or feel when I am out of balance, when I am too isolated or probably too social, or I haven't been in nature enough, or um, I haven't had quiet time for my meditation practice uh, because my life was too busy with social events. So I can track it pretty readily <clears throat> nowadays. But the other uh, moments I want to spend here is with the qualities. So uh, it it is important, like I said earlier, not to consider this process of looking into these five aspects from a mechanical standpoint, but really have a uh, an engagement with it that is more um, that is more nuanced. And so the quality of wisdom is important, which means 
what do we know about a state of eating sugar and how does it feel in my body to eat sugar? So this is what I know, right, from the news, from my reading, from my education, and what my body feels. So the combination of the two is wisdom. So I can observe this inventory or looking at this different aspect and deduct what is the state of my balance or imbalance through my observation according to my inner experience and what I know about those different uh, states. The uh, quality of creativity is really important because this is the source of change. We make, we take actions and make changes out of a creative moment. If I feel like I'm eating too much, um, too much chocolate and I don't sleep well at night, and I know that from you know education, I know chocolate can prevent sleeping, and I do feel like my nights are agitated and I don't sleep well. Uh, so I have my wisdom there, and then. My creativity is the moment where I take the choice to stop eating chocolates after four in the afternoon. And that's my creativity. That's my moment of making a decision. And the willpower is a really a creative moment. The moment we dress up in the morning, it's a creative act. The moment we choose what we're going to eat for lunch is a creative act. When we look at the menu, what am I choosing? This is a creative moment that is connected with what we feel in our body what comes to us today to eat. So there's, a, there's an impulse, but there's also a choice. So creativity has to do with choice, has to do with agency and making the decisions that will transform a state into a better state, a more balanced state. Very important aspect. And finally, the, the quality of love is probably the most beautiful of, a, of all because it has to do with compassion. It has to do with care with affection, with tenderness. We cannot do any of this if we don't treat ourselves well. This is not a boot camp. This is not, you know, nobody has the whip behind. You know, we are here to care for ourselves. So this is done with care, with tenderness, with attention. But it's a, it's a sweet attention. It's like caring for ourselves. This is within the big container of, of care and love. And I feel like if we if we hold ourselves in that, affection sense, affection moment, we can do a lot because then it's a positive uh, improvement. It's not a, it's not born out of a negative feeling, but it's more of a, of a, of an enjoyment of, of, of feeling better and it's held in love. So yeah, this holistic model for me has been a really interesting uh, creation and an interesting, um, like I said at the beginning, a roadmap to see and to gauge how I am doing in my life, how I am considering those experiences and how am I, uh, you know, capable of then creating the best integration possible on the other side of those experiences with psychedelics. That's beautiful. Thank you for walking us through all that. So um, in such a lovely way, I really like the the, um, the holistic models attention to community and environment, especially because it seems like often in in contemporary spiritual contexts we can neglect those two, and it seems like more and more as we're facing so many um, uh, uh, socio political kinds of um, um, awakenings and and opportunities to contemplate and reflect were being called upon again and again to really look at the community and the environment insofar as 
these are relevant to uh, a kind of uh, fully integrated holistic process. Francoise, this has been such a lovely conversation. I could talk to you all day about this beautiful and transformative wisdom, but I'm, I'm wondering as we close for those that are interested in in becoming a guide, because of course we've been talking a lot about these journeys, but there's a there's a, a back and forth sort of throughout your book between um, speaking to those of us reading the book as kind of practitioners and, and looking for insight and, and direction and guidance in that way. And then there's also um, a voice that's in, in, in the book towards, you know, guides or future guides. And, and, um, and you, you know, you say in the book that it's not for the faint of heart. <laughs> um, but if you'd like to share a little bit of perhaps for those who are interested in, 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 in situating themselves in this way or, or moving in, in kind of the direction that, that you have, what is, a, what is a place to begin? Where does one um, start to explore? Well, perhaps both. Where does one begin to explore as a guide and where does one begin to explore as a practitioner, especially given um, the fact that so many of these um, substances are still illegal in, in a variety of um, places? I think that the one one thing is to really understand the the state of expanded states of consciousness. You know, what does it mean to be in expanded states? What does it mean to be guided in such a state? What 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 is this intelligence that one can tap into? So, you know, I'm not doing a, a, a pitch here, but but a plug. But you know, if people want to go on my website, uh, they will find my online course, um, which which I've designed specifically for this. When people, you know, read the book and said, "Oh, you know, I'd want to work with you," of course, I'm not gonna, <laughs> you know, what am I gonna do? You know, I'm not gonna take millions of people to Mexico, you know, but um, but I can take people into various experiences through the five aspect model, accessing expanded states through the body, through the mind, through the spiritual meditation state, through the, the observation of their, you know, life uh, and their family dynamics or such, and through their relationship with nature, for example. So I created these two online courses, which has are, you know, I think priced reasonably. Uh, and if people have, you know, difficulty with money, they can certainly ask me for, you know, um, uh, access, more accessibility, which I unconditionally, unconditionally uh, allow, of course. Um, so that's a good way to start understanding the richness of of being guided into those states. I really feel I, the, the feedback I have from these courses is really quite touching. And I'm really glad that these courses really serve to stop this process of expanding consciousness on these different techniques. Um, the other thing is also to, um, of course, I, I cannot recommend people taking drugs and taking illegal substances. So there are, you know, there are people who are, um, you know, uh, now uh, taking people in Mexico, in South America, and there are centers that in which people can have an experience in legal uh, context, right? Uh, you know, the initiative in Oregon is about to enroll in a year. And so um, people can then go there and have legal experiences with trained guides because I'm in charge of the training there uh, with a team of people. So the guides will be very well trained and, and, and well um uh, you know, oriented to support meaningful experiences. Um, and then uh, 
And then, you know, the, 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 the decriminalization and the legalization of those substances is definitely moving forward. So we can expect that people will be able to possess and use a small amount of substances for personal use come come a few years, you know, or a year, year, you know, it's starting very, it's coming up, right? So I'm not condoning, you know, people taking drugs, but it is also decriminalized fact, right? In a lot of, in a lot of places, which makes, um, you know, which creates a different situation. Um, the other thing is to become a guide, one has to be trained one has to be educated and so um you know my my community has created um is a initiative to uh, train psychedelic guides and and educate people to become fit to be trained as psychedelic guides and uh people can go into this um, website called center for cm which is consciousness medicine center for cm.com um and then uh, look at the different programs we have for already existing therapists, for professionals, and for people who simply want to become guides and want the right education for it. And so they can be, you know, oriented and accompanied through this process. We are organizing um, trainings, uh, legal trainings, of psychedelics in Jamaica, in Canada, and soon in Oregon. So it's it's you know it, things are available um things are available and um and we're hoping to be able to um you know facilitate the 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 broadcasting of well educated guides and loving guides and and skilled guides into into the field of psychedelics and uh you know the the culture is changing rapidly and so it's it's really important to uh seed in this culture uh the appropriate level of skillfulness for the psychedelics to be used wisely. Mm, mm, beautiful. Well, that my, my last question was, of course, going to be to invite you to tell us how we could learn more. So I'm so glad you um, integrated that into the into the answer to the last question. But just to clarify, is it for center for cm.com? Is it center with is center er? Yeah, center like a like a, a c e n t e r. Center for CM. Okay. Mm -hmm. Center for CM. Okay. Yeah. And that's for guides. And then the courses that you were mentioning, your your own personal courses, those are on your personal website or are those also on Center for CM? Those are on my personal website, myname.com, francoisebourza.com. All small letters. Great. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we will make sure to include that in the show notes so people can see um, uh, the links to those two websites, because I'm sure people are going to be interested in in following up. Mm. So, Francoise, this has been such a pleasure to chat with you today and to, to hear about the wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you so much for writing such a, a fascinating and important book on integrating uh, indigenous wisdom and theogens and expanded states of consciousness into our healing and growth. Again, that book is called Consciousness Medicine, and you can get it where all books are sold, I believe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so thank you so much, Francoise. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jacob. It's been really uh, evocative and very interesting for me as well. Good luck with everything. <laughs>